0: publichealth.indiana.edu.
1: Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm Sarah Whitmire. My co host Bob Zaltzberg is out today, but Joe Wren is with us again. Hello, Joe. Hello. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 48 million Americans are affected by a foodborne disease each year. That's one in every six Americans. More than 100,000 will have to visit the hospital each year, and 3,000 Americans lose their lives due to foodborne diseases. Hoosiers are no strangers to outbreaks of foodborne illness, but scientists, including some here in India, and are working on new resources for consumers to protect themselves. Today, we're talking about the prevention of foodborne illnesses and what you can do to protect yourselves. We have some great guests in the studio today. We have Patricia Wakenall. She's the professor of avian diagnostics at Purdue University. Tracy Hawkins is part of the rapid response team. She's an epidemiologist for the Indiana State Department of Health. And George Hegman is professor emeritus of biology at Indiana University. Thank you all for being here today. We invite our listeners to join the conversation. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition or join us on air by calling in at 812-855-0811, toll free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also send us questions for the show at news at org. George, I was thinking we could just start with you and you could explain to us, are we actually seeing more foodborne illnesses or are these just being reported more frequently?
2: That's a good point. Uh, Probably some of it at least has got to do with the news and the reporting. The CDC, for instance, regularly gets out reports of the incidents of different kinds of uh, foodborne illness. Uh, In fact, it's a kind of a joke that's sort of a disease of the month club that they they turn out. And if it's a slow news day, that's likely to show up. And some of these cases can be quite spectacular. Uh, They involve large-scale recalls of food pounds and pounds and pounds of hamburger or turkey or whatever, and uh, the consequence is that they seem to be more uh, frequent or more severe, Uh, but the probability is that it's about the same as it has been recently, because the control of the distribution of food and its processing is pretty good. Okay.
1: Patricia, I'd like you, to, if you can just talk about poultry in particular, and if you can give any sort of numbers about, at the, I guess, the rate at which it's, they're contaminated or, or sick.
3: Well, we have a pretty good uh, uh, regulatory system when you're talking about shell eggs uh, or eggs uh, in, uh, in general. And in 2009, the FDA produ- um, uh, developed an uh, egg rule which is the salmonella enteritidis, which is the most common of the salmonellas that we see in poultry. And anybody that is of a commercial scale um, is regulated. Where we're seeing the uh, uptake is um, in the popularity of backyard chickens and local eggs, local markets. And little kids go into tractor supply and they see these cute little chickens. And you know it's kind of hard to resist picking up a baby chick and kissing it. And, uh, of course, I'm one of these people. I have two children <laughs> of my own and my eldest or my younger daughter, who's 30. Um, whenever we walk into a rural king and I see these chicks in bins that are not covered and I go rushing up to call the manager's attention to this, she just turns her head and goes, oh, God, mom's on another <laughs> on another <It's> roll. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the reality is, is that animals carry salmonella, um, certain animals more so than others, chickens uh, or poultry in general. Uh, turtles that we used to talk about years ago that have the salmonella um, from, and then the increase in, in raw meat that we feed pets. And so the raw meat carries the same kind of risks um, that eating raw meat would be for us, especially ground meat of any kind. And so if you're handling that, giving it to your animals, and you're not cleaning up, that's another. Or if your dog or cat kind of kisses you on the face after eating, as in my case, when he has the dog has uh, cat litter on his whiskers and tries to come up and kiss me. So these are okay. some things that we have to be careful about. Yeah, um, things not think about.
1: You said several mm-hmm. things I want to come back to before we do that. Tracy, I want to get you in the conversation here. But just from, from your end, what happens when you find out that there might be some sort of uh, potentially contaminated food in the state?
4: So we would look to see if there are any cases, anyone that has been diagnosed that would be a match. We would do a food history, interview them, gather all of the information of their past exposures, animals and food. Um, We might do a trace back on a common food item listed and issue a recall.
1: Wow, that's that would be that would be really hard. It seems like almost looking like in looking for a needle in a haystack when you're talking about their whole food history.
4: Um it can be certain pathogens have a longer or shorter incubation period so we kind of have an idea of which window to look for. Um and usually it's just within a few days.
1: Okay. Why well, then with some of these recalls it seems like when we get them it's, you know, maybe the recall comes out in July and it's saying if you bought this thing in April. So then yeah,
4: that's a good point. So these investigations do take time. Um, there is lag time between when someone actually eats something contaminated, it takes a while for them to actually feel sick. And then it might take some time to go to the doctor, they're going to have to submit a sample that takes time to get processed at the lab. And then an interview must be conducted. And all of this adds up. So we
1: go as quickly as we can. But inherently, there's going to be some lag time. Okay. Today, we're talking about foodborne illnesses on Noon Edition. You can join the conversation at 812-855-0811. Uh,
5: just uh, whoever wants to kind of jump in on this one, um, in terms of just being the public, being a consumer myself, uh, what, what are some of the things that, that I guess I would need to do or I would need to think about, uh, especially now during the summertime when it's warmer out and we're pre- – doing more prep of food outside and and, and on grills and things like that.
2: I think probably the most important thing that anyone can do is to wash your hands properly in between the handling of different food products. Um, The USDA says that only 3% of the people in the U.S. know how to wash their hands Mm -hmm. properly. Uh, Use soap. Take at least 20 seconds. Scrub it up good. And this is probably the one single thing that you can do to most protect yourself against foodborne illnesses and, and other kinds of problems like that.
4: I'd like yeah. to add on mm-hmm. to that. That's a good point. Um, the simplest way to break it down would be clean, separate, cook, and chill. So clean your mm-hmm. hands. And clean surfaces, clean utensils, make sure separate um, on the grill you have raw foods separated from your ready-to-eat foods and in your refrigerator and how they're stored on the picnic table, for instance. Cook your foods thoroughly, get a food thermometer, cook the meats to the recommended temperature, um, and make sure your foods are promptly refrigerated if you leave your food out several hours for a picnic it's best to just discard it when in doubt throw it out
5: yeah what what is that length because i know during these times you know you you set out the buffet and it's out and you kind of forget about it
4: yeah it's it's true um i would recommend i I think the fda and cdc say two hours anything longer than two Mm -hmm. hours outside in the summer temperatures is probably best to discard it
1: Mm -hmm. wow you've got to have tips on just in particular with chicken (laughs)
3: <laughs> well, <clears throat> any ground meat um should be thoroughly cooked because the the organisms E coli, Salmonella, Campylobacter, they will all be on the outside of the meat and when it's ground, now it's on the inside of the meat. So mm-hmm. if you're searing a steak, um then you're probably okay. If you are eating a hamburger or a turkey burger, um you need to be very careful about cooking it thoroughly through. And I know that everybody likes their medium rare burgers, but I'm one of those weirdos that has it cooked until it doesn't look like anything I can recognize. (laughs) Um, And the other, I think, is important is the separation. And when you're using utensils um, for a spatula, and if you're cooking a burger or a turkey burger on the stove and uh, and you go and, and flip it, then the raw meat side that has touched that spatula, that has to be then changed to a different one for the cooked meat side. Uh, And that's something that my poor children have lived with um, from the very beginning. And we actually have a a new wave going around. I've seen three cases here in Indiana of um, co-feeding. Co-feeding seems to be a popular amongst uh, maybe people who are raw raw milk or or et cetera um, people, and that is sharing the instruments that you use to feed yourself with your animals and back and forth. And so I've had one of the cases involved a person that was um, uh, immunocompromised, and she had indoor house pet chickens as well as cats. And she was using a um, little eyedropper to feed, like, a treat to the cats, then to the chickens, and then to herself. And that I can't think of anything worse um, because sharing of bacteria, the the idea behind this is that sharing bacteria with your animals would make you healthier because you have the same bacteria. And in fact, that's not true. Um, she got a disease called Pastorella, which is carried by cats. Actually, it's carried by rodents, and anything that attacks a rodent, such as a cat, can get it, it can be passed to chickens, and it can be passed to people. Um, so if, if that's something that you've heard about, I think I would back away from that pretty quickly.
5: And I think you answered a question I had, too, about why when people order rare or medium-rare steaks and that seems to be okay, it's because it's not ground.
3: Yes, because uh-huh. that you're trying to get rid of any contamination that's on the outside. And in reality, we, we have a responsibility to keep our food safe just as much as the companies that produce the food because much of the food is produced as best as we can. But we carry bacteria. Our pets carry bacteria. Um, bacteria is pretty much everywhere. And so um, we have the best food system in in the world, really, for checking for um, agents. And we have to take our part in making sure we don't take agents that are there and we can't get rid of. My, I always tease, and I say, the only way you can get rid of salmonella is if you got rid of people, because we carry mm-hmm. it, too.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: George, can you explain how is it that we 're
1: talking about foodborne illnesses and things like cereal, and then also of course, mm-hmm. I think just fruits and vegetables it 's not just meat
2: no um, there are a wide variety of ways in which bacteria can get into various kinds of food, and some of these are are bad. Not all bacteria are bad, in fact, yogurt and pickles and sauerkraut are the products of bacterial action, and we enjoy those and they 're healthful but uh, there are incidents, and, and the, the chicken issue is clearly one of them. Uh, in fact, even something as innocent as a melon, if it's sliced with a knife and prepared in, for instance, uh, the uh, supermarket and then sold as a cut prepared product mm. or mixtures of salads where various greens are mixed up and sold in a nice little plastic box, uh, there bacteria get in. Uh, not always bacteria. Sometimes it'll be cyclospora, which is a, a protozoan, and there are other kinds of things too. Uh, and they will uh, contaminate the food, so, it's an issue.
1: So the issue with the melon is that it's that it's cut up. It's not something that the melons That's getting right. in the field.
2: Well, the you know the birds flying over the field and pooping on the melons, and there are various animals running around in the field, and farmers fertilize their field with manure, and, you know, there are lots of ways that you can get bacteria that are not uh, good to have in your mouth onto the melon, and if it's not cleaned and it's sliced in a way that uh, is not very careful and it's left to sit around for quite a while, uh, bacteria grow very fast, uh, and you can get uh, some serious infections in that way. Okay.
1: Does the state work with with farmers on how to how to avoid these kind of things? There are many partners involved in
4: food safety. Yeah, all the way from the local level up to federal level. So like an extension office or
1: or something like that. Mm -hmm.
5: And did I hear where some of the larger grocery chains now are not selling cut fruit just to try to limit that type of contamination?
4: There was a voluntary recall issued by the supplier. that those products are no longer on the shelf. All mm-hmm. produce grown in Indiana is safe. That that's not where the issue was, but that investigation mm-hmm. is still very much active.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. I want to ask you, Patricia, just particularly about eggs. So, um, for people who eat eggs, how can they how can they trust that they don't have salmonella? That it was I think it was Rose Acres where we had that right. huge mm-hmm. recall. They have a lot of facilities here, but that was out of a that was one on the East Coast, I think, though, right? North
3: Carolina, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Okay, and. <clears throat> We test for salmonella enteritidis. All commercial poultry eggs are tested, or the, the chickens are actually. We, we test the facilities that the chickens are in, and then the, we know that if the facilities are clean, then that means that the eggs that are coming out of those chickens are clean. Um, this is one we don't test for. It's not one that's really common um, in poultry. So if we went to testing for every single agent, it would be prohibitive. Um, for us to be able to uh, to do this, so the smart thing is then now on something like this one, the um, rather than being enteritidis, like I said, that we test for. What, what is that one? Oh, um, I heard of that. It is brain enteritis. That's our most common um, salmonella in poultry.
1: Oh, it's a t- it's a type of salmonella. Uh, yeah, okay.
3: salmonella enteritidis. Okay. Um, so we call it SE. SE is the most common that is involved in human contamination. So we have many, many, hundreds of different types of salmonella. There are some that actually affect the animals. So we have two in poultry that affect them, uh, pilarum and gallinarum. And every bird that goes to a county fair has to be PT tested. So it's a little blood test, and they go to the county fair or the, uh, if they're crossing state lines, they have to be PT tested. But those are the ones that affect poultry. And they don't affect people. Then we have the other group that really don't do a lot of damage to poultry. So we, don't, we can't look out and go, oh, those chickens are sick. We have to take care of them. And they're passing something in the egg or in the meat to people. And in that case, we have to test the environment that the birds are in to make sure that we don't have um, particular salmonellas. And the one that we test for is enteritidis because it's the most common. But when we get things like Heidelberg or, in this particular case with Rose Acre, um, um which is an fairly unusual for poultry, it's not really up there in the top of the list, then we don't know that that's going out in the eggs um, because it's not picked up on our usual testing scheme. So as soon as Rose Acre found out from going with working with the public health officials and with CDC, there was a recall. But, again, that takes a little bit of time so the recall started in in May and the actual infections probably started the end of March, middle to the end of March. And so they immediately turned around and, and took care of the, um, bringing back any eggs. But for our personal use, an individual egg that has been refrigerated from the time that um, we we have 30 hours um, from the time an egg is laid to the time it um, we have to have it in refrigeration. So chicken eggs lays an egg every 26 hours. Um, so then Uh, If it's cage poultry, it rolls right out onto the conveyor belt, goes right into the where it can be um, processed and into the refrigerator very quickly. If it's cage-free, it may sit a little while um, because the chickens lay the eggs and sometimes they don't always lay them in the nest. Um, Chickens are a little weird. They're not particularly the most intelligent beasts on the earth. And they don't always know that they're supposed to lay in a nest. Um, So they might lay it on the floor or they might lay... It uh, on near their food tray or something like this. And it's really the fecal contamination from the chickens on top of the eggs that allows the uh, salmonella to get in through the pores of the egg. And so when we get the refrigeration, um, that stops any growth of the salmonella. Um, but if you decide you're going to let the egg sit on the counter for a day, or years ago, we used to not refrigerate eggs. We still you could buy them at the drugstore, um, unrefrigerated. In Europe, they don't refrigerate eggs, um, but they don't wash their eggs. So we wash them so they look nice and clean. We take a bloom off the top, they have to be refrigerated. They don't wash them in Europe, they leave the bloom on so they're kind of gnarly looking sometimes because they got bits of poop on them. But the bloom helps to reduce the contamination. So you get your egg in your home, and you're picking it up with your hands, and you go to crack it onto your um, frying pan, the most important thing is to try, number one, if you get egg material on your hands, is to immediately wash your hands. Um, discard the shells right away. They are the the carrier. And one egg rarely has enough salmonella in it, if it had salmonella at all, to contaminate a human being. But if you take 10 or 15 eggs and you mix them up into a salad dressing raw, and you serve it at a picnic, um, a Caesar salad dressing, and it sits for two hours. Then those bacteria go crazy. Mm-hmm. And that's how the contamination occurs. Um, I usually say if you really want to have an egg that's not fully cooked and I kind of fall in that category, um, I leave a little bit of a runny yolk. I never leave a runny white um, because the yolk has some antibody in it. It's the most part of the antibody. If there was bacteria in the yolk, a lot of times it's gone. Um, because it's hooked to the antibody. Uh, but that's not, you know, that, you can't depend on that. The yolk is the only thing that I would let be runny and on an egg that's been properly handled.
1: 812-855-0811. Uh, if you have questions for our guests today, you can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition or email your questions in to news at indiana org.
5: So we haven't talked much just about restaurants, too, in general. And, I mean, I have to assume there's a lot of training and stuff that goes into that. But, you know, every now and then, some of these national chains are in the news because of something that happened. Uh, Maybe, Tracy, you can talk a little bit about restaurants. And is there anything (laughs) on our end that we need to look out for?
4: Um, When you walk in, you might get a general feel for the place, just see how the ambiance is and um – if they seem like they're fully staffed or if they're understaffed, that sort of thing. Um, restaurants have a lot of education from their local health department who are the ones that conduct the in- inspections there. Um, so there's there's training and information available, but I would just look to see how it feels. And um, you can always get reviews from your friends and that sort of thing. Um, but if it seems like it's really running smoothly, you know, it, you can't always know what's going on behind closed doors. But generally, if you, you can just trust your gut and see if... It seems like a place that might be okay.
5: And sometimes we see those health inspections in the newspaper or online mm-hmm. where there are critical violations or no violations. Uh, how often does that happen, and do the restaurants know that the inspector is coming?
4: They do not know an inspector is coming. It's unannounced. Um, an inspection is a snapshot in time, so they can right. record what they're seeing at that moment. Um the inspection frequencies are different. It's really dependent upon the type of establishment, the level of risk of um, operations that they're conducting there, and who, who is doing the inspections, the local health department.
2: I'd like to uh, speak up as a member of the Monroe County Health Board. The, the board is really the front line of defense regarding the local restaurants. They're involved with the plan reviews for building the restaurant, how the kitchen is constructed. Um, They check the construction once it's done. They do complaint investigations. And finally, uh, inspections. We have about 100 a month here in Monroe County. Um, And some of the complaints can be immediately fixed if it's a relatively minor thing. But others can be much more serious. And uh, these are all dealt with uh, according to the the rules. So the Monroe County uh, Health Board has... Our health department has a, a food section which does this inspection, and they're the guys who are the first on the ground when it comes to ensuring that the restaurants are clean and working properly. They even run training for at least one person who must be adequately trained in food handling to be in the kitchen at all times.
5: And is that the same for food trucks as well, that you see the mobile downtown now that are becoming more and more popular?
2: Food trucks have uh, slightly different rules, but, yes, basically mm-hmm. it's the same idea. They must have cleanable surfaces. They must have an adequate number of sinks and deal with foods in the proper way with respect to temperature. Keep cold things cold. Keep hot things hot. And handle things with hand protection, sometimes hair and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, other kinds of protection as well. Does so, the
1: health oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No. Well does the health department do they also investigate things like the salad bars and stuff that we see at grocery stores?
2: Any place where that? where food is prepared and sold to the public. Even okay. little places where all they've got is a coffee pot and you can get mm-hmm. a cup of coffee, they're still subject to inspection as a public food dispenser and seller.
1: Okay. Today on Noon Edition, we're talking about foodborne illnesses. We have Patricia Wagnall here, uh, the professor of avian diagnostics at Purdue University, Tracy Hawkins, a rapid response team epidemiologist for the State Department of Health, and George Hageman, you just heard, speaking there. He's the professor emeritus of biology at Indiana University. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we have a lot more to talk about, about foodborne illnesses. We'll be right back.
6: From the Milton Metz Studio at IU's Radio TV Building, this is noon edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber online at smithville.com and IU School of Public Health Bloomington online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers south-central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIUNews. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live and You can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't find anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org.
1: Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Sarah Whitmire with co host Joe Wren today. We're talking about foodborne illnesses today, and we have some great guests in the studio who are giving us all of their knowledge and, and some great tips. You can join the conversation today by calling in at 812-855-0811. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition and email us questions to news at org. So I was thinking, Patricia, maybe you can start the second half for us here. I'm just curious because it seems like um, I just visited a, a relative in Portland, and one of the things she was telling me was, I don't know if I would ever move back to the Midwest, because I love here that I can go meet the people who have chickens in their yard, and that's where I get my eggs. But some of the stuff you were saying earlier, maybe that's not, Maybe getting them from a, a factory is a better way to go. It sounds like it might be safer.
3: Well, first I want to make comment that factory isn't – no animal's in a factory. They're not exactly working. They're doing stuff that's natural. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I mean, it's not yes. a sweatshop. Thank you, and, yes. And our farmers um, – All our farms are owned by individual farmers, and so they may contract out to bigger companies. But you are right that we have some strict rules um, through FDA um, for meat that is produced and eggs that's produced in commercial businesses. But when we talk about small local operations or somebody's backyard chickens, we don't have um, the same kind of rules that apply. That doesn't mean that the eggs or the meat is not as good, it just means it hasn't been tested. And that means that you have to have extra caution. The people who work um, or have the farms, there's, at least in Indiana, we have a really good option. Um, the Indiana State Poultry Association actually uh, will test uh, eggs from small producers, 12 eggs, called the T12 program. And they test not only for salmonella, but for diseases of birds, mycoplasma one that's very serious in birds, um, and uh, also with uh, avian influenza, which we've had here in Indiana. And there's no charge for this. They actually even send you the box. Um, so you can look them up. They're on the Purdue campus and so that you can look up their website and find out how to get the box. That gives you a once in a year look at your poultry as whether or not they have salmonella. But it's a nice thing to have handy um, because when you get a when, when you go through the, um, the egg commission, because you have to have that to sell eggs, they're only looking that you actually handled them properly from the time that they were laid until the time you put them out in front of your farm or you went to a farmer's market. They don't look at whether or not there's any disease um, in those particular foods or et cetera. So the same caution that you would use. Another caution that I have for people who, who and we go out and do farm visits Um, actually for no charge, again, paid for by the Indiana State Poultry Association because I train senior veterinary (coughs) students in how to handle backyard chickens. And we go out and look at farms, and one of the specific things I look for is there's anything on that farm that could potentially harm the human that is consuming the egg. An example is lead. Um, We've had three cases in Indiana of lead poisoning in children um, that from eating the same eggs off their farm on a daily basis... And some of the things you look for is chickens Lead anything. They'll go after, well, each other. Um, they'll go after you. Um, but they'll also go after paint chips, so if you have lead paint. They'll also um, kind of like a. if you have oil dripping out of a, an old tractor, let's say, it's kind of like a, a nip of water, which we use for chickens. Um, they see this nice, shiny droplet, and they're going to go for it. Um, they also like beer, which is another thing that we, it won't <laughs> harm the eggs, but... Uh, is an interesting factor. So remember that these are animals, they'll eat anything that appears mm-hmm. to them attractive, um, kind of like a dog, which will eat anything yeah. and then decide later if it's food. Mm-hmm. Um, so be careful with your handling. Be careful, and if you are curious about testing, um, we have that advantage here in Indiana.
5: What, what if you do get, I mean, what I guess besides just being ill, like are they all flu symptoms if you are poisoned by food? Is that kind of the...
2: Well, I can depend a lot on the actual nature of the agent that produced okay. the food poisoning. Uh, most things you just have a gippy gi- gi- stomach and yeah. you feel like you're maybe going to uh, vomit. Sometimes right, there's right. diarrhea. But a few agents will get actually through the intestinal tract and into the body, but they're pretty rare. Mm-hmm. But some of those are the, the nastiest ones, things like E. coli which has been in the news uh, lately, E. coli 0157H7. It's got a license plate. And (laughs) also uh, toxoplasma. Um, Some of the salmonella will get through the the gut and into the bloodstream and make big problems. Um, Clostridium occasionally. Uh, But mostly this affects people who are of compromised immune status, older people, pregnant women, very young Kids, uh, that's the sort of uh, uh, group that is most affected by foodborne illness in a serious way.
5: I wanted to also ask um, about power outages this time of year as well. I, I, I would assume, rest. Well, maybe not all restaurants, but some of them, the bigger grocery chains, might have some backup generators to keep the basics going. But not everyone has that. What happens when people lose power and they can't keep their food cold?
2: Well, we heard earlier, when in doubt, throw it out. (laughs) Right, right. Uh, FEMA has a very good website which actually discusses this particular issue, specific kinds of of foods and how long they can be uh, without refrigeration. Meat, fish, uh, egg dishes, things that are are pre-cooked and mixed, all of these are very dangerous. Things like bread or, or, or fruit uh, in, in frozen form are probably not. But you have to be cautious and it depends on the specific case and how long it's been thawed.
5: Mm-hmm. Is that still kind of the two-hour rule for that? I mean it's not outside but is that – for a power outage?
4: Yeah, it, it depends. I would agree with everything you said. If if something is frozen, you might have more time. Um, realistically, a restaurant should not be operating without electricity, without mm-hmm. water. Those sorts of things are basic to keeping the business going. But you can maybe keep some things going if they're shelf stable and you're still able to wash your hands and wash utensils and th- things.
1: Are there are there common foodborne illnesses in addition to some of the ones that we've already been talking about that you see pop up more frequently in Indiana?
4: I wouldn't say Indiana specifically some of the most common foodborne illnesses are norovirus which can be spread person to person that's a lot of our cases are actually they catch it from another person rather than a food or maybe an ill food handler um, so it's important to not work while you're sick, handling food, even for your own family or in a restaurant. Um, salmonella is another common one.
1: Campylobacter is a common one. Do you see more instances of foodborne illnesses this time of year during the summertime? We can. Certain pathogens,
4: yes, with the outdoor cooking and that sort of thing. Um, some, some of the more person-to-person pathogens get real common around um, when school starts and Christmas and those sorts of things, but some of the summer ones, certainly, yeah.
5: Well, and just because it was in the news lately, the hepatitis A outbreak that we've heard about in Ohio, Kentucky, and now Indiana, is that something that can be transmitted through food?
4: There is a... A low risk, but yes, okay. if someone is ill with it and they are handling food, there's a very low risk, but there, there are other factors to consider with that. That person must be experiencing diarrhea, have poor hand hygiene, all right. sorts of issues. It, it's very rare to get it from someone who is not actively very sick in the illness at that moment. Are they handling ready-to-eat foods, or is it food that's going to be cooked, that sort of thing? There's a lot of factors taken into account with
1: that. Did you have something to add to that, George?
2: No, I think that's a, a very good summary of the okay. hepatitis. Well, I,
1: with hepatitis, I'm curious, though, because it does seem like, at least the cases here, I, mean, I think there were there were a couple in Lawrence County, um, and then further south, I know there were several more, but it was with some restaurant workers, so is that is that just a coincidence?
4: This, this outbreak is being spread by other behaviors, not by food handlers. Okay. They happen to be food handlers, but it's other behaviors that are actually the risk that are
1: driving yeah. it. Okay. Today we're talking about foodborne illnesses on Noon Edition, safety tips, all sorts of things. 812-855-0811. If you have a question for our panelists, you can also send us questions to news at org. Patricia, I want to ask you, do these big, bigger
3: egg producers, do they actually vaccinate? Oh, yes, oh,
1: so that is a thing okay oh, yes. I didn't want to ask the really dumb question. But. no,
3: um vaccination for poultry is extremely important uh, because you have a lot of chickens in uh, uh, in together, and of course, chickens like being together. if you ever go to a cage free operation and I always laugh because the the qualification is always well, a chicken should be able to stand up and spread its wings and not touch another chicken. Well, if a chicken can't touch another chicken, they're a depressed chicken because they are a prey animal and they want to be in a group because it's mm-hmm. the one that's out of the group that is the one that's most likely to be predated. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a um, it's a it's a you know this is a, a common uh, misconception. Chickens, you don't really want to have a single chicken unless uh, we mentioned Elvis the rooster, who uh, was my oldest chicken I've ever seen at seventeen and lived as a house pet. Um, but uh, these are are behaviors that are are normal. And the thing that I, when we were talking about risk factors and and how you handle, um, I'm actually a cancer survivor. Um, So I changed a little bit of how I handled animals um, as a veterinarian um, when I uh, finished my chemotherapy. And I think we all have to think about what our risk factors are. And some of us will take a risk. So, Technically speaking, um, I'm not supposed to have pet animals at home, but I have cats and a dog, and I'm not supposed to sleep with them. The cats sleep on my bed, um, but I take that as a conscious risk. I do not allow my animals to touch my face, lick my face, uh, lick my mouth, etc. So these are things that that you are um, and and, and it, it, that comes with. Conscious decisions of how you handle your birds and your animals. We talked about a little bit about um, chickens being very cute. Um, I would be very careful about small children handling my chickens um, without being absolutely sure that they are not either touching their hands um, and then their face right afterwards. Or if you pick up an adult chicken and a child tries to face it on, um, the chickens go after something that's shiny. And being pecked in the eye is something that I'd be very careful about. So these that are, we see more animal born illnesses in humans now because we have really focused on human-animal bond and our ability to relate to our animals. Um, So we have clothing for chickens, and we have um, little bonnets and and coats and diapers and all kinds of things, like you can dress up a dog or a cat. And, And that's pretty cool. But at the same time, remember... Um, these are animals that you can get sick from. When,
1: when an animal is carrying one of these diseases, can you, can you tell
3: that sometimes? Please? Sometimes you can, and sometimes you can't. The animal may not get sick from the illness. Um, Toxoplasma, which was talked about, um, it's the reason why pregnant women should never clean cat boxes unless... Unfortunately, I have a really good titer because I had cats, and I'm a veterinarian, and I made the mistake of telling my husband that, and so I got stuck cleaning cat boxes when I was pregnant. (laughs) Um, But in reality, it's a very serious issue um, for both the mother and and the fetus, and you have to be very careful because you can't tell that your cats have toxoplasma. Some of the salmonellas that you see in the chickens, we can't tell that they have them because it doesn't make the chicken sick. So it's very important handling... um, Our animals and our food that comes from animals or even food that doesn't come from animals because we can spread the contamination ourselves um, as as we talked about with norovirus. Um, And that's a, a particularly nasty and people themselves may not know that they're sick. How many times have you gotten a bellyache and said, oh, I just got the stomach flu and never go in for testing? How many people don't go in for testing, but may still make your family's dinner? Um, may still work in a restaurant um, or uh, handle food at a picnic because you're not sick enough to be away from the picnic but but you're probably not, sh- should not be handling food. Yeah. That um, was a
1: question that I, that I had for Tracy. It was like how, how do you know the difference? Because these numbers that we were talking about earlier were unbelievable. 3,000 Americans lose their lives due to foodborne illness, foodborne diseases. More than 10,000 will visit a hospital each year. But Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so
4: so yeah you brought up a great point you should not be working with food whenever you're experiencing vomiting or diarrhea regardless of the cause um, at home for your family or in a restaurant our local health departments do provide guidance to all of our restaurants um, employees their specific symptoms where they should be excluded or at least restricted not handling food maybe doing something else taking out the trash washing the floor etc and so every restaurant will have someone in charge in place a restaurant manager they have that documentation posted up.
1: Okay. But but I guess at, at home, if you do have a stomach bug, I don't mm-hmm. know, George, maybe feel free to chime in here, but is there anything where you should think this isn't the flu or this isn't just a
2: 24-hour bug? Well, if something causes a fever or it lasts for a period of time, you should be very careful and consult medical authorities about the situation.
5: What about the whole? And just talking about this reminds me of more of the the increase of organic foods and more local. Um, is does that contribute to the increase of foodborne illness that we're seeing more of an organic push of food, or no, or, or or would it be the opposite?
4: I think all food is held up to the same standards, the same mm-hmm. safety standards, organic or not.
2: Mm-hmm. One of the confusing things is that there are a lot of different agencies involved with the the control of foods at the sort of wholesale distribution level. For instance, uh, we've we've heard that the FDA deals with the chickens, but the USDA deals with the other components of a chicken salad. And uh, the consequence is that there's some disconnection here, and sometimes the communication might not be good on an international level. There's an outfit called InfoSAN, which is the International Food Safety and uh, 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 Authorities Network, InfoSAN. This is a combination of the WHO, the World Health Organization, and the FAO, the Food and Agricultural Organization, of the UN. And they have an international uh, group, which is becoming more and more and more important as we trade foods around all over the globe, to help the individual countries' uh, health authorities trace food epidemics and problems of this kind, so that it's not just local food departments or USDA FDA. It's it's an international effort that. That helps keep us free from uh, foodborne illness. Mm-hmm.
1: Are foodborne born illnesses more prevalent in the U.S. than in other countries? Or?
2: Actually, sense? a little more than some and not as much as others. <laughs> 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 uh, we're, we're a little lower than Australia and France for reasons that I don't understand immediately. Uh, but we're a, a whole lot less than the less developed countries uh, in terms of foodborne illness. For obvious reasons, the absence of refrigeration and, and hygiene processes in general. But uh, there is a process, an overall process called the uh, hazard analysis and critical control points process, which can be used to look at any process in which a raw material, like a vegetable or something is being used as a foodstuff, to trace its track from the field to our tables to see exactly where there's a possibility for contamination and to focus on those points. And and you can probably uh, particularly help us out with that kind of treatment. It's different for different kinds of foods, but it, it really does uh, help to focus on these critical points.
1: It's like a food history of... of
2: exactly. Creation. It's a kind of a case history for each food, and then you can say, well... Gee, there, everything's getting mixed up together. Maybe that's a point we really ought to look at to see whether everything's clean uh, or there's some stage where a washing process occurs. Is a disinfectant used or not? Is it just soap or you know just water? Um, and
1: that's something you look at when somebody gets sick. You are. So,
4: yeah, and it, at a restaurant level or even a wholesale distributor or something, they're going to find specific risk factors, like you said, and then specific ways to control that and have documentation and plans and SOPs, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Um, for us, it, when we have, we may get a report from a doctor that someone was a confirmed diagnosis of a reportable illness. We may receive that information through complaints by citizens. Um, there's a number of ways to get the information. And we will do an interview. Um, Each pathogen has its own specific interview with specific um, exposures. There's also a general foodborne illness interview if someone is calling us and saying, I am sick, but they haven't been diagnosed with something yet. And then we'll work backwards in time, find out their exposures. If they do match someone else anywhere in the country, we can find that and try to find the common exposure.
1: So if you are experiencing symptoms, I mean, if you just go to a your family doctor, you don't have to go to the health department or something, right? Like your family doctor can then sort of start this whole process if it, oh, or how does that work?
4: If you are ill, I would recommend seeing your family doctor and um, they may collect a sample from you, s- stool typically, um, that may be sent to the state public health laboratory where it gets analyzed and then that's how we can confirm what illness you're actually experiencing and is it the same as anyone else?
1: Okay. Um, with some, of, I'm sure it's different depending on the foodborne illness we're
2: talking about. But can you
1: cook these things out? No, <laughs> George, your face.
3: Well, yes, <laughs> uh,
2: the cooking is a very important process uh, to keep the, the pathogens uh, out of your food because it kills them. Viruses and bacteria, fungi, protozoa are all susceptible to to heat killing. Uh, some bacteria make spores, and those are a special problem. Uh, Clostridium botulinum, for instance, will make it through home canned beans often if you're not careful enough to follow the instructions, which uh, you can learn the proper instructions from the uh, uh, extension office and in Purdue, uh, and they have good, careful uh, instructions on how to do home canning. Tomatoes, acidic fruits, y- you can be a little... A little more uh, cavalier about those; they don't need quite so stringent control over the the process. But yeah, cooking and heat are the friends of <laughs> of, of food health, mm-hmm. uh, and also just the opposite. Keeping cold things cold after they're prepared is a very important issue. That's why a food thermometer, as we've already heard, is is a handy tool.
3: Okay, so, there's a big prominent one, but we don't. We have a really good testing system here in the U.S., but mad cow disease—it's um, a prion disease, and it uh, it cannot be killed um, by cooking. So this is one that um, we have—we actually do with the HACCP, We have trace back that we can actually trace back to an individual animal. Uh, if you're talking about beef cattle, um, an individual farm. If you're talking about poultry. You know, when we have a million and a half chickens on a particular farm, you can't go back to the individual chicken, but we can go back to the individual house and know which, and even within the house, uh, let's say it's caged chickens, we can tell which bank of chickens um, has been affected. We do this a lot with avian influenza and others so we can uh, do trace traceback. Um, so it's a, a very important thing being able to keep records um, of, uh, animal identification, uh, individuals. If you're talking about larger animals um, and groups, uh, identification um, in order to know where our food comes from, so that if there is a trace back, we know particularly um, what individuals are involved. Because the other thing you have to realize is, is on the veterinary side and the animal welfare side, if a trace back is done and it goes back to an individual group of animals it's likely those animals will have to be depopulated or destroyed because they are producing material that may not be treatable. So if you have an organic farm, as you were talking about, um, we cannot treat those animals. Um, We cannot give them medication. Now, if it's a cow, an individual cow, you could move it out of the herd and give that individual. If it's 22,000 organic chickens in a cage-free farm, there's no way that we can pull out an individual and treat it. So many of these animals die of the disease um, before anything even makes it to a trace back or et cetera, because I can't go out and treat. Mm -hmm. So it's a dual-edged sword for me, because as a veterinarian, I see chickens die of a treatable disease um, on an organic farm, but it takes that person three years to get qualified for that organic farm. So treating them with an antibiotic would be disastrous. Uh, on the other hand, I look at these chickens and feel bad for them. Um, I mean, it's, it sounds weird, but I I still as a veterinarian, I have compassion for all animals, and I love my chickens. Um, they do a pretty good job, whatever whatever end they end up, and they've got some pretty bizarre personalities and mm-hmm. and odd behaviors. Um, so so these are things that are in the U.S. that I think we should. Um, I might end this comment, because I do a lot of work overseas um, in developing countries, and we won the lottery by being born in the U.S. because food safety and animal rights are a luxury in every other company, uh, country uh, compared to the U.S., where it's a standard for us. We can choose to eat organic. We can choose to not eat meat at all. Um, and and so it's those choices aren't available in many countries.
1: We only have a couple minutes left, but... Again, this might be the dumb question, but is there any way that you can see any of these diseases in your food or taste any
3: difference? The smell test never works. <laughs> yeah,
2: that's, that's a good point. You, you, sometimes if something is so bad that it smells or it's slimy or it's got fuzzy things growing on it, you know that's got to go. I mean, that's this is the refrigerator stuff in the back, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, but I see uh, college
3: students that eat that.
5: <laughs>
2: uh, well, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think, again, if there's any suspicion the simple, safe solution is, if in doubt, Throw it out. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. I think that's probably a good place for us to end, just on those simple words. But thank you all for joining us today. For thank Patricia you. Wakenell, Tracy Hawkins, George Hagman. thank you all so much for being here. Thank this is a good thank conversation. You. And I want to thank our producers, Patrick McGurr and Taylor Haggerty, as well as Mike Pashcash and co-host Joe Ren. Thanks for sitting in again today. Thank you. I'm Sarah Whitmire. This has been Noon Edition on WFIU.